Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of the Mind Body Mastery podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Michaels. Thanks so much for being here today, guys. I know last week I mentioned that I was going to give you guys an interview today, um, but that's not quite ready yet. So today um, we're going to be talking about how your body is actually your subconscious or unconscious mind. Um, And so we're going to talk about the research of Dr. Candace Pert. I'm going to read a little excerpt from uh, uh, an essay by Michael Brown, and we're going to find alternative ways to think about our body and mind connection. And so before we do that, I just want to read the review of the week. Um, This review comes from Jessica. So thanks, guys, so much for keeping the reviews coming. I feel the love and I really appreciate it. Um, And so this review says... I look so forward to listening to Caitlin's podcast. They are inspiring and so helpful. I did not get to attend Nicole Sachs workshop in Chicago, but thanks to Feel It to Heal It, I was given an insider's view and felt included and informed. I'm also thankful for being introduced to the works of Byron Katie and Claire Weeks. For the first time in a long time, I'm feeling encouraged. Thanks, Caitlin. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jessica. I really appreciate your support. Um, And if you like to support the show as well, feel free to, yeah, just shoot me a review. It takes a couple seconds if you have the iPod or I, I, or the podcast app or through the iTunes store on a computer, I think. So thanks again, guys, for all your support and love. Here is my cat, Jack, saying hello to everyone for the episode. And, uh, I just caught him in the neighbor's yard, so I had to rescue him, and so now he's not really happy with me. Um, And so, yeah, so today um, we're going to be talking about the work of Candace Pert. Um, She kind of rocketed to fame in the scientific community, I think, in the early 70s. Um, She was a neuropharmacologist, and she took on this mission of finding Um, what we now know as the opiate receptor. Um, This was her doctoral dissertation at John Hopkins School of Medicine. And so for the next 15 years, she um, was the head of a lab at the National Institute of Health, which published over 200 scientific articles explaining the discovery of what's called neuropeptides. And so she discovered this opiate receptor, which started a revolution that would later create big shifts um, within nearly every field of modern medicine. It would um, actually unite um, immunology, endocrinology, neurophysiology, psychology, and biology into one cohesive theory about how our thoughts and emotions are actually capable of creating either wellness or illness within our bodies. It would revolutionize what um, Western medicine has been missing for years, which is um, something that Eastern healing traditions have been keenly aware of for centuries. Eastern philosophy, like Chinese medicine, would state that consciousness precedes reality. And the way we think in the West is that we think that 
our thoughts and emotions are products of the physical brain. And uh, we have been indoctrinated to think that our thoughts and emotions have anything to do with our body or our health. That's why the statement, it's all in your head, has been so um, uh, insulting over the years, but it really needs to not be <laughs> because it's all in our mind-body system. So our minds are always part of it. Our heads are always a part of it. And it's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that we're head cases. It just means that our brains are connected to our bodies. And so PERT um, maintained that the current theories and perceptions of psychosomatic illness need to shift as we unearth these more scientific uh, concepts that validate that consciousness is a mind-body situation. As her research kind of helped to create the foundation for an entirely new branch of science called psychoneuroimmunology psycho-neuro- or PNI, which unites three historically separated sciences of neuroscience, immunology, and endocrinology, and their associated glands and organs into a multidirectional communication network, which is linked by information that carries molecules or neuropeptides. PERT um, discovered this psychoneuroimmunology with, uh, and she gave us this new language to use that these peptides and receptors um, are like information substances, thereby helping to legitimize this new field. She noted that her preferred term was psychoimmunoneuroendocrinology, which recognizes the inclusion of the endocrine system, but the simpler name of PNI became the accepted term in scientific communities. So the more popular name for this became mind-body medicine. And so we might refer to the whole system as a psychosomatic information network linking psyche, which includes all that is of a so-called non-material nature, such as mind, emotion, soul, um, to soma, which is the material world of molecules, cells, and organs. Mind and body, psyche, and soma. Dr. Pert's research provides scientific evidence that a biochemical basis for awareness and consciousness exists and that the mind and body are indeed one and that our emotions and feelings are the bridge that links the two. She explained that the chemicals that are running our body and brain are the same chemicals that are involved in emotional experiences. And that says to me that we'd better pay more attention to our emotions with respect to health. Using Pert's research as a foundation, we now have a new scientific understanding of the power of our minds and our feelings to directly and profoundly affect our health and well-being. This new science explains that we are one system. The brain is integrated into the body at a molecular level, and therefore neither can be treated separately without the other being directly affected. According to Dr. Pert, our bodies are in fact our subconscious minds. 
in the end, I can't, I find I can't separate brain from body. Consciousness isn't just in the head, nor is it a question of the power of the mind over the body because they're flip sides of the same exact thing. Mind doesn't dominate body. It becomes body. So how did our modern perception of science get it so wrong? Indigenous cultures worldwide have long been known to honor the mind-body-environment connection. Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, systems of medicine that are thousands of years old, still correlate organs and illnesses with specific mental-emotional states. And so the use of these medicines aims to return the patient to a mind-body-spirit balance so that healing occurs organically. The only trouble with this kind of medicine is that no matter what, it can't feel your feelings for you, but it can open your body to be um, available to having an emotional release of sorts. And so Aristotle suggested back in the day that there was a connection between mood and health when he wrote, soul and body, I suggest, react sympathetically upon each other. So how did our current model of Western medicine come to embrace exactly the opposite view? Uh, apparently, we can blame that on René Descartes, who was a 17th century French philosopher, the I think, therefore I am guy, and what we've come to refer to as the Cartesian split. Descartes needed human bodies for dissection studies, and he made a deal with the Pope of his era. He wouldn't have anything to do with the soul, the mind, or the emotions, which remained under the church's jurisdiction. And modern medicine would take the physical body as its domain, thus dividing the human being into two separate parts that were never to overlap. Descartes declared that anything to do with the soul, mind, or emotions I leave to the clergy. I will only claim the realm of the body. And according to this paradigm, to understand a human being, all one had to do was take the body apart and study the various physical components, which is now referred to as reductionism. Isaac Newton, the father of modern medicine, also maintained through his Newtonian construct that only physical matter was real and that it was all that really mattered. And so the foundation was laid then for several hundred years of relating health and disease exclusively to the realm of the physical body. This theory is changing slowly, but even today, modern doctors will ask about physical symptoms and pres prescribe dr drugs or surgery. Using the mind to understand the body is still usually labeled unscientific, and the mind affecting the body, psychosomatic, and therefore somehow is not relevant. And everyone seems to be offended at the suggestion that their physical pain or issues could possibly be psychosomatic. And so this is ancient programming in our collective unconscious. And that's why so many people are um, hesitant to accept the idea that their minds can control their bodies or that their minds or that their bodies are their subconscious minds. So Candace Pert's book is called Molecules of Emotion. And so what exactly is a molecule of emotion? The first component 
is the one that Pert discovered 30 years ago or so that launched her scientific career, the complex molecule known as the receptor, and more specifically, the opiate receptor. She discovered a method to measure it, and therefore, in a backward sort of way, proved its existence. This discovery would explain the mechanism by which such opiates as heroin or morphine create their powerful effect on the body, the mind, and the emotions. Coincidentally, Pert had a personal experience that had like, given birth to this growing fascination about how these substances can cause such a powerful effect on the body, mind, and emotions simultaneously. She had a bad fall while horseback riding, and so she found herself in the hospital being given a morphine derivative to relieve the pain of a compressed lumbar vertebrae. She marveled at the combination of both the pain-killing effect and the mental and emotional changes induced by the drug. She noted the euphoria and the blissful altered state that she experienced every time she received an injection. She also liked the opiate's wonderful feeling of being deeply nourished and satisfied, Um, So she considered continuing on the drug for her pain when uh, she was released from the hospital. She ended up not doing that, and her intense physical and emotional experience intrigued her, and she wondered about this overlap of physical and emotional effects from a single drug. In this fascination, she no doubt had a great deal of company. Many have wondered how such drugs as heroin, marijuana, librium, and cocaine are able to create such intense emotional shifts. This hospital experience would later trigger an interest in proving the existence of the opiate receptor as her doctoral focus. Now, receptors sit on the surface of the cells, and they number in the hundreds of thousands on the average cell. Specialized cells, such as neurons, might have millions of receptors surrounding them. These receptors are tiny little scanners and sensors which wait patiently until the exact chemical key comes along that will fit into them, much like a regular key is made to only fit into a specific lock. These chemical keys are called ligands, and the most common of these is known as the neuropeptide, accounting for nearly like 95% of known ligands. Pert described what happens next as quite amazing. The peptide delivers its chemical message to the receptor, which then transmits this message deep within the cell, triggering a chain of biochemical reactions, which can create huge changes within the cell, either positive or negative. PERT calls the peptides the uh, second component of the molecules of motion. She offers an analogy that goes like this. If the cell is the engine that drives all life, then the receptors are the buttons on the control panel of that engine. And a specific peptide is the finger that pushes the button and gets things started. Pert then asks the logical question, if we all have these opiate receptors present on the cells within our bodies, then must it not follow that our bodies have the ability to make our own endogenous version of morphine? Why else would these receptors already be present in our cells? So within three years, she was proved correct um, when the natural opiate substance manufactured within the body was discovered and eventually became known as endorphins, a shortened version 
of endogenous morphine. The implications in this discovery are pretty profound and suggest that we may in fact have a natural pharmacy within us. And maybe someday we'll be capable of manufacturing our own natural biochemicals at will, which would orchestrate our own healing. And Pert suggests that this is not as far-fetched as it sounds and probably not too far off either. Now, emotions are real. They exist in time and space and are located throughout our minds and bodies. If we accept the concept that peptides and their receptors are the actual biochemicals of emotion, then their simple presence within our body's nervous system and nerve cells shows us that the body can be thought of as the unconscious or subconscious mind. Pert explains further, um, as investigations continue, it is becoming increasingly apparent that the role of peptides is not limited to eliciting simple and singular actions from individual cells and organ systems. Rather, peptides serve to weave the body's organs and systems into a single web that reacts to both internal and external environmental changes with complex, subtly orchestrated responses. Peptides are the sheet music containing the notes, phrases, and rhythms that allow the orchestra, your body, to play as an integrated entity. And the music that results is the tone or feeling that you experience subjectively as your emotions. So Pert suggests that these emotion-linked peptides at receptor sites on cells influence whether we stay well or get sick. And one example is viruses. So viruses use these same receptors to enter our cells. And depending on how much of the natural peptide for that receptor is around, the viruses will have an easier or harder time getting into the cell. So our emotional state will affect whether we get sick or stay well from the same loading dose of a virus. So this would also explain why some people get much sicker than others from incidental exposure to the same virus. Pert considers that maybe an elevated mood or, or elevated happiness, positive expectations, or hope can offer some protection against a virus. We are all aware of the bias built into the Western idea that the mind is totally in the head, a function of the brain, but your body is not there just to carry around your head. I believe the research findings indicate that we need to start thinking about how the mind manifests itself in various parts of the body and beyond that, how we can bring that process into consciousness. The neuropeptides and their receptors are the substrates of the emotions and they are in constant communication with the immune system, which is the mechanism through which health and disease are created. Think of stress-related disease in terms of an information overload, a situation in which the mind-body network is so taxed by unprocessed sensory input in the form of suppressed trauma or undigested emotions that it has become bogged down and cannot flow freely, sometimes even working against itself. We are not brain-centric at all, and that a state of mind is actually a state of consciousness in the body as well. The origins of illness are really within us. Science and medicine have been convinced that thoughts and emotions originate in the brain, but in an interesting twist, 
um, per disagrees and suggests that thoughts and emotions bubble up from the body to the brain, where we can process and verbalize them according to our expectations. Beliefs and other filters sometimes get through and others don't. And then Pert says the frontal cortex of the brain creates stories and assigns meaning around those thoughts and emotions that do get through. Pert tells us that neuroscience has now proven that immune cells can be conditioned to respond to stimuli, much like Pavlov's dogs, who were conditioned to salivate at the sound of a bell. Psychologist Robert Adder at the University of Rochester School of Medicine gave lab rats an immune-suppressing drug flavored with sweet-tasting saccharin. Eventually, the rats became so conditioned to the effects that giving them only the saccharin and no drug at all caused their immune system to become depressed at the unconscious and autonomic level. So Pert says that we know that the immune system, like the central nervous system, has memory and the capacity to learn. Thus, it could be said that intelligence is located not only in the brain, but in cells that are distributed throughout the body, and that the traditional separation of mental processes, including emotions, from the body is no longer valid. So later in pivotal studies at the Case Western Reserve University in Ohio, scientist Howard Hall proved that the immune system could also be conditioned consciously using self-regulatory practice, such as self-hypnosis, meditation, biofeedback, and guided imagery. Using several control groups, Hall demonstrated that with conscious preparation, through using one of the types of practices noted above, individuals could consciously control the sickness of their white the, the stickiness of their white blood cells as measured by both blood and saliva. Pert then asks the obvious question, if the immune system can be altered by conscious intervention, what does this mean for the treatment of major diseases such as cancer, MS? Can suppressing anger or other emotions contribute to the development of cancer? Since expressing emotions contributes to a free-flowing network of peptides and cellular communication in the body, Pert says, yes, absolutely. And she said that my research has shown me that when emotions are expressed, all systems are united and made whole. When emotions are repressed, denied, not allowed to be whatever they may be, our network pathways get blocked, stopping the flow of the vital feel-good unifying chemicals that run both our biology and our behavior. A general theory of cancer suggests that we all have errant or mutated cancer cells created in our bodies every day, yet only some individuals will go on to develop the disease. Normally, our immune systems destroy these errant cells, yet in individuals whose immune systems are severely compromised, this mechanism fails. If the immune system is influenced by the molecules of emotion and the peptide receptor system in the body, then what happens if the free flow of peptides is interrupted on a continual basis by the repressed emotions of our lifetimes? Pert suggests that it's not too hard to figure out what might happen in such a case. And she said, let me begin to answer by saying that I believe all emotions are healthy because emotions are what unite the mind and body. Anger, fear, sadness, and these so-called negative emotions are as healthy as peace, courage, and joy. 
To repress these emotions and not let them flow freely is to set up a disintegrity in the system, causing it to act at cross purposes rather than as a unified whole. The stress that this creates, which takes the form of blockages and insufficient flow of peptide signals to maintain function at the cellular level, is what sets up the weakened conditions that can lead to disease. All honest emotions are positive emotions. Health is not just a matter of thinking happy thoughts. Sometimes the biggest impetus to healing can come from jumpstarting the immune system with a burst of long repressed anger. How and where it's expressed is up to you. In a room by yourself, in group therapy situation, where the dynamic can often facilitate the expression of long buried feelings, or in spontaneous exchange with a family member or friend, the key is to express it appropriately and then let it go so that it doesn't fester or build or escalate out of control. The other day, there was a post in one of the Facebook groups stating something like, I've been expressing my true feelings to my family members and I just feel worse and my family doesn't like the change that they see in me. This would be a great example of expression that leads to more repression. So I would just be careful of of letting it all out to your family members, especially if you're if you're letting out the true repressed feelings of anger that you have for them because um, that will often create uh, more stuff to put in your reservoir of repression and guilt and shame that goes along with making a family member upset. So this is why I prefer to journal or otherwise hash it out just in my own head rather than involve my family members, even if they seem like they should be involved. Pert concludes her book with the following simple recommendations gleaned from all the scientific data that she has included in her um, tenets of psychoneuroimmunology and their implications for healing. She says, aim for emotional wholeness. When you are upset or feeling sick, try to get to the bottom of your feelings. Figure out what's really eating you. Always tell the truth to yourself. Find appropriate, satisfying ways to express your emotions, and if such a prescription seems too challenging, seek professional help to feel better. Live in an unselfish way that promotes a state of spiritual bliss that truly helps to prevent illness. Wellness is trusting in the ability and desire of your mind-body system to heal and improve itself if given half a chance. Take responsibility for your own health and illness. So I'm going to end today's episode by reading an excerpt from Michael Brown's uh, essay that I think is really pertinent to this conversation and helped me to contextualize my bodily messages. So hopefully you can glean some wisdom from this as well. A powerful attribute of the body is that it does not think and therefore is more present than we are when our attention is straying off into time. What do I mean by when our attention is straying off in time? Simply this, when we are thinking about something that is going to happen tomorrow or something that already happened yesterday, then we are not here now. We are in a mental and emotional place called time. We spend most of our life experience adrift in this place and as a consequence, spend most of our life experience out of the body. Living in this place called time is now an accepted habit and is considered normal behavior. In fact, it is encouraged. We are told to plan our life, yet we are not told to show up now. 
The condition in which we find ourselves today is that to be a part of what humanity calls a civilized world requires that we spend most of our life experience out of the body. We spend most of our life experience thinking our way through the endless mind field. This is a behavior that happens quite independently of the physical body, but is nevertheless reflected in its moment to moment condition. The body cannot be out of body, but we, we can and do spend most of our experience missing in action. The body is intelligent beyond our present comprehension, but it uses this intelligence to act in the present moment, not to ponder on yesterday or project onto, onto tomorrow. It acts simply as a mirror, revealing the sum consequence of our every unfolding thought and emotion. Because the body does not contemplate on the past or project onto the future, it is therefore always in the present moment, mirroring symptomatically where our thoughts and emotions are in time. The body simply responds physically and chemically in each moment to our thoughts and emotions and therefore our feelings about ourselves and our attitude towards being in this world. In this sense, the body is an ongoing reflex to what we consciously and unconsciously embrace as our truths. This makes our physical body a very re reliable barometer of what's really going on within us, but we drift habitually in and out of time. We can read our own body like a book. There are entire sciences or agreements, as I prefer to call them, based on the concept or reading of the body. From iridology to reflexology to palmistry to uh, even in Chinese medicine, tongue reading, most parts of our body, like our hands, feet, face, forehead, and ears, can be read and viewed as fractals representing the state of the whole. Understanding how this is possible and how it works is best communicated by metaphorically seeing the body as a hologram. A hologram is a three-dimensional image created solely of light. The profound thing about a hologram is that if you take any part of the image and blow it up to a full size, it will appear identical to the complete and original image from which the part was taken. In other words, every part of a hologram is identical to the whole image, even though it may look different and unique when viewed simply as a part of the whole. In this respect, any part of our body can be elected as a representative of the whole if we understand how to read it as such. Years ago, through observation of my own symptoms and those of others, I started integrating that, just like the universe, on a daily basis, my body was talking to me. Through observation and experience, it became clear that my body's symptoms were manifesting as a way of gaining my attention. It was trying to bring my attention to what I was unconsciously thinking and feeling. Most of these unconscious thoughts and feelings were related to the past or the projected future, but my body was recording their effects in the present moment so that I could observe them as tangible physical events. Hence, the phonetic language's interpretation of the word symptom is some time. According to this definition, symptoms are simply pieces of time we have not yet integrated being mirrored in our body right now. This is another reason why it is not necessary to journey back into time to know what is going on with our emotions and thought processes. All we have to do is read the body as it is now. This is simply a process of learning our body's language. Most of us have heard the term body language. This is a term that refers to the ability to read another person's physical, mental, or emotional state of being by their body position and posture. 
Let us now return to the discussion about the magnificent, magnificent physical body with which we have adorned our spirits in this universe and begin opening our minds to the endless possibilities of establishing a means to communicate with it. Personally, when approaching such a task, I prefer embracing the obvious and have therefore developed a process of body symptom diagnosis that is founded on common sense, metaphors, and the phonetic language. In other words, nothing new. Because this is about my body, which I am inclined to take far too seriously, I also incorporate a healthy helping of fun, the inevitable consequence of the phonetic language. My system is easy to understand, and once you get it, it makes common sense. What's more is it's not new because we use it unconsciously every day in our manner of speech. Again, let me be clear that my system is not the truth. It's simply my agreement with the universe as to how I choose to communicate with my body and therefore with all the bodies that appear in my life experience. So this is it. My agreement with the universe about how I communicate with my body and all other bodies in my experience states that everything I experience around, on, or in my body is my body deliberately communicating with me. As with my interactions with my outer world, there are no accidents when it comes to my body. Every event and circumstance involving my physical body has meaning and happens deliberately. This includes every ache, pain, scratch, seemingly accidental bump or itch. No event or experience is excluded from this new agreement with the universe. I therefore cannot choose to be selective about when my body is communicating with me and when it is not. If I'm being selective, it is because I'm not ready to deal with the information yet or that I simply don't want to know. Or it's because I am unconscious and adrift in time to the point that I've forgotten that I even have an agreement with the universe about how to communicate with my body. Let me now explain to you the basics of how I actually read my body. Once you get it, if you enjoy it, you can tailor make a dialogue with your own body and the bodies around you according to the way you use common sense, metaphors, and phonetics. Once you have made an agreement with the universe as to how you intend to communicate with your body, this arrangement will be installed accordingly. Not only will you be able to communicate with your own body, but as I have already written, this agreement with the universe will also allow you to communicate with all physical bodies in your life experience. If you are a practitioner in the healing arts, your clients' bodies will automatically speak to you in line with your agreement with the universe. You will therefore be able to read them like books. So according to my agreement, this is how I read my body. The front of my body represents the future. The back of my body represents the past. The right half of my body is male, which relates to father-brother issues on one level. And the left side of my body is my female side and relates to mother-sister issues. My legs in general are related to how I'm metaphorically walking my path through life. My arms in general are related to my life's purpose or work. My stomach area relates to how I am digesting the experiences that I'm having in my life, as in whether I can stomach something or not. And my chest area always represents the heart of the matter. My backbone is related to how supported I am feeling in the world or how I am supporting myself in the world. The lower part of my back relates more to the root physical issues like survival, money, whilst the higher part of my back relates to more emotional-based issues like my emotional support systems and my ability to receive unconditional love. 
My solar plexus relates to issues around personal power and authority. The area directly in front of my heart represents my ability to give unconditional love, while the area between my shoulder blades represents my ability to receive love. The area between my shoulder blades is also where I keep all my garbage, because no matter how much I turn around, I cannot see it. Between my shoulder blades is also where my compost is for growth. When I deal with my garbage and I turn it into fertile compost, it is in this area that my wings metaphorically sprout and spread so that I can fly. Then we can get more specific. My feet are related to how down to earth I am and issues around being grounded. My calves are about childhood issues because a calf is the child of a cow. My shins are related to things I shun. My knees are related to areas of neediness. My hips are related to how flexible I am in the world or how hip I am. My anus is related to how I am dealing with my shit, so to speak. (laughs) My urine will always reflect the state that you're in. My sexual organ relates to my issues around potency or impotency, as well as issues around creativity. Each of my fingers is related to the names already given to them. My thumbs are related to approval issues, as in thumbs up or thumbs down. My pointing finger is related to issues around blame or accusation or diffusion of responsibility. My middle finger is related to reaction, anger, or profanity, as in giving someone the finger. My ring finger is related to issues surrounding loyalty, relationships, and commitment. My little finger is related to issues of self-esteem. My nails are related to being nailed on any of the issues according to which finger it is. My wrists are related to risks. My elbows are related to effort and determination around my purpose or work, as in elbow grease or or elbow out the way. My shoulders are about putting the shoulder to the wheel or carrying the world on my shoulders. My neck can also be related to issues of being a pain in the neck or courage and conviction as in sticking my neck out for something. My lips and tongue are to do with my speech and my word use. My lips are also about mood and therefore emotional content as in smiling or sulking. My ears are about hearing and my ability to listen to what I hear. My nose about things I knows or that I don't want to knows. My eyes are about the way I look at the world and how I choose to see it or the way I choose not to. My teeth are related to how I'm biting into my reality, as in biting off more than I can chew. Like my fingers, each of my individual teeth tell a story according to their accepted names, as in my wisdom teeth or my eye teeth. My sinuses are about inner crying. My sinuses tell me if I'm holding back emotions that I would be better off releasing. For repressed tears, the sign is sinusitis. Itching is related to unsatisfied desires. Scratches are related to superficial issues that are just breaking the surface, while actual wounds that draw blood are related to surfacing emotional trauma. Bruises are related to emotional issues that are just beneath the surface, and broken bones symbolize serious breaks in my experience related to whatever area of the body they occur. So this gives you a basic understanding of the vocabulary I share with my body. I want to again be clear that I am not stating that this is what is for everyone. That would be to miss the point of making agreements with the universe. What I am saying is that 
this is how I've arranged the communication between the body I am in and myself. It is an agreement that once the agreement is made, I live by it. So does my body. And this enables us to have a conscious relationship with each other based on clear and quite often humorous communication. Because I have this agreement with the universe about how I communicate with my body, it also allows me to read others' bodies using the same language. To understand how and why this is possible requires a discussion on the consequences of oneness. Until we get to that point, I will simply state that my way of interacting everyone's physical body in my life experience mirrors the way I interact with mine. Therein is the oneness of it all. So how do I actually receive communication from my body? Say, for example, if I'm walking along and bang my right knee, I no longer say, oops, I was clumsy or I had an accident. I now know immediately that the universe together with and through my body is working intimately to communicate something to me about how my past is impinging on my present moment experience. If I'm interested, because I don't always have to be interested, I then diagnose the event as follows. I first look at the physical event. I banged my right knee. So it is an issue of need related to my male side. This will most likely be rooted in an unproductive or self-destructive belief system I've manufactured regarding my relationship with my father that is now calling to be integrated. Then I can look at it mentally. To get a better idea of what this belief system actually is, I examine what I was thinking just prior to and exactly in the moment I banged my knee. These thoughts will identify the incorrect perception or belief system that I'm holding on to that is not serving me. To integrate how this experience how this experience emotionally, I simply recall the precise emotion I displayed throughout the incident. In other words, what was my emotional drama? If I was angry, then the issue is one that involves anger towards my father as a result of something I perceived him doing to me, or anger towards myself for having allowed it. If I got a fright, it relates to fear. If I, shred, if I shed tears, it relates to grief. On a deeper level, if I want to reach a spiritual integration, I then examine this whole scenario with respect to my relationship with God as my spiritual father. Having set up this agreement with the universe about how I communicate with my body self-empowers me. I no longer have to go to a complete stranger in order to find out what the thought process and emotions are that aren't serving me, since the state of my body simply inaccurately reflects them. This is the language my body now speaks, and I am learning more of its words every day. It also saves me on medication that only serves to suppress the symptoms. I seldom use medication because... After having set up a channel of communication with my body, to then feed its symptom suppressors is no different than placing a gag order on it. That would negate my arrangement with the universe about my body. However, as I also compassionately embrace the stance of mercy over sacrifice, I will on occasion use, use medications to ease the suffering I experience through my body until I can integrate what it is that the discomfort is trying to bring to my attention. However, this is rare. It is definitely the exception and not the rule. Without my physical body, I would not be here now in the physical, mental, and emotional plane and thus having this opportunity for self-realization and service. Without my body, I would be adrift in time and have no point of focus to bring me back into the present moment. So if we can start to 
look at our bodies in this way, that it's it's literally a reflection of our unconscious mind and that it is trying to communicate with us through the pain or through the discomfort or through the sensation. And we can start to identify what those messages are and make our own agreements with our bodies. Like, like this morning, I woke up with a little bit of a shoulder kink, um, you know, and it was like, it was like, I wasn't sure what I was going to have this episode be about. And I feel like this weight on my shoulders about the whole situation. And I was waffling between subject matters. And, um, you know, so I just sat with that feeling for a while. And it's already, you know, feeling slightly normal again. And so every time I have an ache or a pain or something going on, it's another opportunity to learn more about this brilliant communication system that we have in our physical bodies. And so, you know, if I have like a stiff neck one day, I'm uh, looking around to see who's a pain in the neck or maybe wondering um, why I don't want to look around me or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, whatever that meaning is for you, um, you have to decide what, what it means in your life. Um, but simply making that connection can be transformative to the way we think about our bodies and understanding that if we, um, approach our bodies this way, then that automatically takes, again, the fear out of bodily symptoms, and it makes it more of an investigative process rather than something that we need to dominate or get rid of. And so I hope today's episode made sense to you. I hope it wasn't too sciencey or boring. And, uh, and I hope uh, if you have any questions, you can just direct them to me at mindbodymasterypodcast at gmail.com. And again, if you have a success story that you would love to share on the air, please reach out to me either at that email address or mindbodymasters at gmail.com works as well. So thanks again for joining me today, guys. I really appreciate your loyalty and love and dedication to your own mind-body connection. I think this this investigation uh, within is poised to change the world. So thanks for having your part in it as well. And uh, and I think I'll have an interview for you guys next week. I'm almost positive. So um, look forward to that. And I'll see you next week. Thanks.